Welcome to Something to Talk About, where I take all this gear that I've accumulated from way, way, way too many years of podcasting, and I put it to a good cause. And in this particular case, we're going to actually have a couple of causes, but we're actually going to have our guest kind of introduce them because he's obviously uh, quite close to them. So first of all, our guest today is Joe Persia. Joe, introduce yourself for those that may not know who you are. Well, thank you, Robert. Uh, yeah, my name is Joe Persia. I've, I've been living here in Brantford for about 30 34 years now, ever since I got, uh, I got married, made, uh, chose to make Brantford my home, but I'm originally from the Niagara region. And um, having chosen to make Brantford my home, I've discovered that this community has an awful lot to offer and uh, a, a number of wonderful opportunities to contribute and make this such a great place to live and, and earn a living. So um, I am an educator by trade, as you mentioned, I, I teach kindergarten and have been teaching kindergarten for a number of years now. So Early learning certainly has a special place in my heart, but uh, through my involvement with education, as well as uh, previously volunteering with Rogers Community Television, I've gotten to know a lot of wonderful, wonderful people here and um, been exposed to a number of other things that take place in this community that um, really bring to life something that uh, I hold dear. And I've, I've repeated as a saying before, that uh, communities are much more than just the bricks and mortar. They're how we look after each other and the things we do for each other and the services we provide for those in most need. Um, and that's really where Brantford has become my home. Uh, so I want to emphasize that because there is so much to offer here in this community. And I've met some wonderful people. So, and when people, <laughs> when people meet you and start chatting with you and you demonstrate a little bit of an interest in what they're talking about, shortly after that typically comes an offer of, hey, would you like to help us out with, to which I be, I've, I've gotten very, very poor at saying no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and that, that usually ends up, uh, I, I can recall uh, for a number of years, uh, just thinking, oh my goodness, how am I going to do all this? But at one time, Robert, I don't mind telling you, I was on the board of directors for the Rotary Club of Brantford Sunrise. I was on the board of directors for the D.A.R.E. program, Drug Abuse Resistance Education. I was on the board of directors for Kids Can Fly. I was on the board of directors for the Adult Recreation Therapy Center. And I was running the junior golf program at the Brantford Golf and Country Club all in that very same year. So it was just one of those things that when you hear about a good cause, of which Brantford has so many, it's very difficult to say no. Yeah, it, it's... Uh... You know, for me, I, I kind of tend to, to focus on a couple of, of main ones and try to give my, my, my full attention on those ones as opposed to spreading myself too thin. But uh, right. uh, having done a lot of interviews, you, you, you come across all these stories. And for someone like you, where, uh, you know, one of the prime elements of the series content that you have is, you know, the, the constant in-stream of, of events and, and charities and, and causes and, and things that normally don't get people's attention trying to find you know, every little bit of eyeballs they possibly can. And, you know, they turn to us in, in many cases. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and my involvement with Rogers Television, I don't mind telling you, I mean, that people, you, I mean, the number of people that would uh, stop me and say, hey, I saw you on Rogers Television. I'd be, oh, like, wh what was I talking about? And they, they, would, they would tell me about some event because one of the things that Rogers Television enabled me to do with my first involvement, and I have to give a big shout out to, to Patty Berardi and Jason Soulier who were instrumental in getting me off the ground with Rogers Television. But, but it allowed me to keep the fing my finger on the pulse of what was happening in and around the community. There were so many events that were taking place. And it, and it gave me the opportunity to learn about those events and the organizations that um, 
offered those events and provided the, the infrastructure to, to allow those events to take place where I really got to meet some, some great people. I think that's the, the nice thing, too, is when you're constantly being um, fed, for lack of a better statement, you know, yep. a constant stream of stories that you would normally not be exposed to. It's the ultimate discovery. You know, like I, I, I love doing interviews that I've never done before so that I have to learn the content ahead of time. And, and that way it pushes me forward. You know, I, tr I try not to have the same content over and over again. Uh, I try to make the content evergreen as much as possible because you never yeah. know when people are going to listen to. So a lot of that does not necessarily work as well for things that have a short lifespan where, you know, the event is next week. You know what I yeah. mean? Like my, my content is meant more for people that may come across us 10 years from now and, and get value. And I found that that in many ways, you know, because as we get older, we see these patterns. Uh, a lot of the patterns exist, so a lot of the knowledge that we, we pass on is repetitive, uh, and education is a prime example of that. It's here's some core concepts, beliefs, structures, you know, whatever that we've evolved over time, but that concept, that structure puts you in contact with so many minds. And like I said, right. both from you as an interviewer on the various shows that you have, as well as an educator dealing primarily with, with, with kindergarten kids now, but you've done you know seniors and you've done post-secondary, uh, if I recall correctly. Um, you know, Just those sheer touch points when you're the type of person, and I know you're this type of person because I've talked to you before, where you absorb from all of those connection points. It's phenomenal how much compound interest we get on those conversations and how the, it, it factors into the next conversations we have. People Like we're continually evolving from these conversations. So my first question, because that was the long-winded intro, is when you look back at all of these conversations, regardless of what the topic was and what the charity was in a particular case, what are some of those things that really stood out that, that, that seemed to be a pattern when you look at it from a, a wider 10,000 foot level, because most charities share certain uh, structure and certain causes and needs and whatnot, and some do them poorly and some do them really well, you know? So when you get exposed to so many of these variations for the lack of a better term, what are some of those things that you may have picked up on over the years that might help charities, causes and so forth going forward when they have, well, Robert, a, yeah. It, you know, and, and it's interesting that you, you, made that connection for me because it's a, it's a wonderful segue into to really, and I can speak about the connections I've made in chronological order because um, in moving to Brantford and, and choosing to make Brantford my home, one of the, one of the very first people I met was a, um, a young lady by the name of Lori Santilli, who was uh, at the time just leaving her position at St. Joe's Hospital to take on an executive director's role with an organization called the Adult Recreation Therapy Center, which, uh, or at, believe it or not, at the time it was called the Family Living Group, just transitioning to become the Adult Recreation Therapy Center. So, and her and I got chatting and, uh, you know, in, in her words, not mine, but in her words, she was uh, kind enough to say that uh, she felt like I had something to offer and might be able to help them out with some fundraising because it was this fledgling organization that at the time received no government or Ministry of Health funding. So I asked her to tell me a little bit about this organization and I thought, geez, I, you know, that, that really does sound worthwhile and I think I can help you out. So I, I agreed to, to sit on the board of directors and in doing so, 
I started receiving some stationery arriving at the house, uh, uh, you know, board meeting agendas and minutes and things like that. And it was arriving on stationery that had still had the old corporate name on it, the mm -hmm. family living group. And uh, again, for lack of, um, for, for the people that aren't aware of this, the, the family living group and now the adult recreation therapy center is an adult day program for frail elderly and early dementia clients. But what, what was unique in this particular situation, Robert, was that as this stationery started arriving with the name Family Living Group on it, um, my wife said, wait a minute, what, what's this Family Living Group stuff? I thought you joined the Adult Recreation Therapy Center. And I said, well, that's, that's true. We're just using up old stationery. We're trying to save some money. So we're, we're just kind of piecemealing our way through to, until we use up all this old stationery. So she said, oh, so the organization you're involved with was actually at one time the Family Living Group. And I said, yes. Yeah. So then she proceeds to go to her closet and pulls out this old photo album. And it turns out uh, her mother, my mother-in-law, a woman I never met because she had passed away um, before I ever met my, my wife, um, was one of the founders of this organization. So that really was something that made me think there really is something in the, in the universe that draws people to certain causes. So, so that was something that, that made this particular cause very, very important to me. And, and since then, it's been a, a wonderful opportunity to, to see and learn about uh, this segment of our population who really um, deserve a great deal of credit and deserve all the services we can provide to help them, uh, I guess, improve the quality of life that they have, uh, regardless of their circumstances at the present time. So, and it's really all about the quality of life and the quality of living that the Adult Recreation Therapy Center can help uh, help our clients with. Yeah, it's it's great to hear these because, like I said, uh, every time someone shares their passion project, you know, there's typically either a family connection or a personal connection or something like that. But also, it's it's something where you ne didn't necessarily know you were going to be that passionate about that project until you really started coming into it. And, you know, I, I obviously have mine. Um, you brought up another one earlier when we were talking about causes that that really left an impression with you. And this one's a, a slightly more famous because it's got a worldwide presence, if I understand correctly. Yes, the Dolly Parton's Imagination Library. Well, again, and this, it stemmed from my interest um, in, in looking at uh, the clientele at the Adult Recreation Therapy Center. I became very interested in dementia and cognitive development and cognitive processes and, and the impacts that um, certain diseases and certain metabolic processes have on our, our brain and the structure and architecture of our brain and the function of our brain. So of course, um, that led me to do some research and some reading and I dove into the subject um, head first, <laughs> so to speak, no pun intended, and, and learned absolutely as much as I could. And lo and behold, I came across a gentleman by the name of uh, Fraser Mustard, who had done some seminal work in early childhood education. He and the, the Honorable Margaret McCain published the Early Years Study and, and talked at great lengths about how the early learning and um, lifelong health trajectories uh, for an individual are largely set um, in those very early years. So the more we learn about the early years, it can actually help us understand a little better about how to improve the later years. So that's how that all came about, Robert. And it was fascinating. I, I, I consider myself so blessed to have had the opportunity to meet uh, Fraser Mustard, Dr. Fraser Mustard, and have several conversations with him. Some of the books I have 
behind me on a, on a shelf that you can't see because of my virtual background, but uh, were books that were recommended to me by Fraser Mustard um, that talk about cognitive development and uh, the early years and early learning and the important role it plays on, on our lifelong path. So uh, that really got me started. And then what I soon discovered was that literacy, as I got into education, um, I began to see that here I was teaching grade six, there were some children arriving at my classroom door that were really struggling with um, some of those literacy acquisition skills that should have been handled, in my humble opinion, much earlier in their academic um, career, so to speak. And I started wondering, why isn't that happening? Or why is it so difficult for some children? So I made the move to a younger grade, asked my principal, and I made the move to a younger grade. And sure enough, still at that grade, there were some children coming to me with some difficulties. And I thought, got to be in the very, very foundational years, the earliest years. So, so I made the move to kindergarten and, um, again, was very interested in literacy. But as I made that move, I happened to come across a book in, um, of all places, um, a doctor's office that had a picture of Dolly Parton on the front of it, and it had uh, the book lady. Mm. And so I read this article about this this program where Dolly Parton, um, world famous uh, country and western singer, was promoting an imagination library where her foundation made it possible to um, mail through the through the mail service a book every month to every child between the birth of uh, between the time of their birth and their fifth birthday so that every child entering kindergarten would then have a library of 60 books which to me just spoke volumes because what what I had discovered in some of my my early research and early childhood and literacy skills those 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 questions I was having about why is this so difficult for some and not for others led me to discover that the the dearth of literacy in some households the lack of literacy and, and not living in a literacy rich environment was really a, a key indicator of some of the success or lack of success that a child might experience in their, in their academic endeavors. So, and I, I began to read some of the works. There was a, a wonderful book published by two researchers, Hart and Risley called Meaningful Differences, where they looked at socioeconomic status. And we now know that um, they broke households into three different categories, either high socioeconomic status, um, medium socioeconomic status, or low socioeconomic status uh, households. And they looked at the vocabulary uh, demonstrated or the vocabulary exposure in each of those households. And what they found out, uh, Robert, was that the children in a relatively high economic, uh, socioeconomic household, status household, were exposed to about 36 million more words than was somebody from a low socioeconomic status household by the age of five. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine that just that, that the sheer volume of vocabulary that they were exposed to is, is tremendous. Yeah. And, and when you also factor the fact of, you know, internet access to a degree, um, you know, those that are willing to use the internet for, for that purpose, as opposed to all the other purposes that it's being used for, the amount of content that is out there is, you know. Yeah. But I do want to caution you, yeah. Robert, because screen, screen time is something, when it comes yeah. to young children, screen time is something. So using, using the internet for liter access to literacy is something that I, I, I think the jury is still out on. Yeah. Um, it can be engaging for young children as the, 
the 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 bulbs flash and the and the and the buttons make noises and the things that the kids click on and there's so many things happening. That I believe the jury is still out on some of the research on on how that impacts the the sensory things that are are taking place uh, in a child as they're digesting the content if like a better term. exactly yeah. well i know well then let's let's be clear nothing beats physical you know what i mean true uh, tactile uh, multi multiple senses well robert I'll be, I'll be the first one to tell you even yeah. with with kindles yeah. and with these the the electronic these ebooks that you can now get on a device there is still nothing quite like a handheld book and yeah. i'm i'm a firm believer that i i would much rather sit down with a a book in hand rather than an electronic device and and scroll through pages electronically. Yeah, and for myself, it's it's always been more the audio spectrum. Uh, so a lot of audio books and stuff like that, just because I was very mobile. Um, yeah. You know, because, but part of my issue as well in the past was um, I always got tired when I was reading. And that, this is something I didn't learn until much, much later. And that's because my eye strain. You know, I, okay. I, I, I never, yeah. I never for the longest, longest, longest time uh, had proper uh, reading level lighting and stuff like that yeah. so, so you would get tired and and it was not an attention span it was a you were literally getting tired uh so i literally had to change how i, I digested content because my eye strain was taking some of that energy needed for the digestion right. of the content if it, any of that makes sense but it wasn't well, until it much does. later and in life that, that i realized that's what and a lot of it was because i got a very weak eye so it was you know constantly this mm -hmm. going on you know, for yeah. those that, that don't have the visual, this kind of doesn't make any sense. Uh, but a lot of kids uh, go for years with a lot of undiagnosed hearing or, or, or visual or whatnot. And for the longest time, like I said. Well, aud auditory processing is very, very important. Visual processing is visual acuity is very important. And, and what you're talking, even the cognitive demands placed on somebody, the, the cognitive demands placed on working memory. Mm. When you when you when a child is reading something, there's a, a certain amount of information they're expected to retain in their working memory that allows them to continue to read in a more fluent manner. Um, so I'll break the process down yeah, for you a do. little bit. When, when when somebody is reading, actually their their eyes focus typically um, on very few letters, and the, and they make these jumps of about eleven to twelve characters in length. Five to six, five to seven times per second. So a fluent reader is scanning across the page, and and very uh, fluent, uh, fluid circadian movements. And they call them saccades. These these jumps of of seven to twelve, seven to eleven characters. But the outside, the periphery of those characters are generally speaking very blurred. It's only the very center that comes into focus. But that working memory, that part of our brain that recognizes certain patterns of letters and, and words and, and meaning that we're able to attach to it. So when you begin a phrase, you start to know what the rest of the phrase is going to be that comes from everyday conversations with mom and dad and your, your again, your use of language and vocabulary. So those, those circadian jumps in a, in a fluent reader are greater and more in number than somebody with a reading disability. So somebody, for example, with poorer vision would have a narrower scope mm. uh, and would make probably fewer jumps per second. And therefore the reading would start to sound more like this when somebody is reading because they don't 
So, and, and yeah. I could go on and on, but that's, that's basically what it boils down to. So, so there you have the visual acuity aspect of it. But again, that, that phonetic and phonemic and uh, phonological awareness that plays such an important role, knowing that words rhyme, knowing that words can be chunked into certain parts. Mm. Uh, I recall, and, and it's funny we're talking about this because I can recall being in high school, Robert, and I came across a word in a book that I had no idea what it was. And I had to use, this was my very first inclination that gave me the idea that, wow, context is important. And I was reading about cars and, and this cleaning, cleaning a car. And this person used this thing called a chamois, C-H-A-M-O-I. And I thought, chamois. It's a chamois. Chamois. That's uh, like it. It just struck me as so odd that this word was spelled C H A M O I S, and I thought, wow. Had I not really understood what 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 would be used to clean a car, I never would have been able to piece together what what that word was or what it meant. When um, I, I grew up on military bases, as you well know. Okay. And so you're moving every two years. Okay. You, yeah. The population of your class varies tremendously from nothing to nothing. And uh, I remember grade nine, uh, my class size was what? Six people. Okay. Wow. Uh, well, they, they had grade 11 was one person. Grade 12 was one person. They put <laughs> them together type of thing. Right. In any case, so, so grade nine on the military base was completely different than Segonda Trois. Uh, off the base, which is where I started the year, uh, because I was actually pure French all the way up to Seconde Artois, which is grade nine. Oh, uh, And I actually got pulled from uh, the civilian French school uh, to be brought into the safety of the military school for very northern Quebec reasons. Uh -huh. uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and, enough said. Uh, yeah, enough said. In any case, uh, I went literally overnight over the Christmas holidays from a pure French grade nine education curriculum in French, to a full English only uh, uh, grade nine curriculum on base with a, a significant difference in uh, class yeah. size uh, and class uh, diversity as well. But uh, the, uh, the lessons from that period of time was my brain, and this applies to me still now because as you all know, it applies long term is certain structures and certain words are still stuck in that French-only brain of mine, you know? Yeah. Uh, and sometimes the words are simple, but sometimes they're just ridiculous. Like, here I am, a tech guy dealing with CPUs in French. That's a puss. A puss yeah. is a flea. Yeah. You know, who goes and says, I'm going to figure out that a microchip is going to be called a flea, you know? Yeah. And, and so, so and then you're trying to do that with a six-figure income, right? In any case, language <laughs> is, is tough in its own right. Uh, well, and, and, and you, you've touched on something midway. that is, well, you've touched on something that is, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the second language thing, because there is a significant body of research that, that indicates children who are exposed to a second language earlier oh, in life, guaranteed, uh, there, there is a, a, an easier, uh, or there's a facility, uh, and, and there's again, part of a French word, facile, um, facilité, uh, <laughs> ou facile, you know, facilement, ouais? oui, oui, but see, je parle français. Je parle québécois. Oh, my. My. <laughs> but uh, so, I mean, the fact that uh, these children exposed to that second language very early in life are exposed to different phonological and phonemic combinations and sound and letter associations that, that provides them with uh, the ability to, again, 
later on adopt even additional languages and, and, a, and an ease with which they can adopt a certain accent. And so, so there's that whole aspect. The other thing I wanted to touch on in, in talking about this was that the English language is probably um, uh, one of the most confounding combinations of letters or symbols and sounds that one could ever possibly imagine. I mean, here we're, we're having fun talking about this, F-U-N, and yet if I pick up the phone, that's P-H, and you came from a part of Quebec where you had to be pretty tough, which is G-H, where if you put any thought to it, where there's a G-H that doesn't make a sound, how, how's that for, you know, going full circle with the English language? I mean, it's, it's incredible. Uh, and again, we, we ask early learning students, children who in that four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old bracket to recognize certain patterns and to be able to create words and meaning from these scribbles and lines they see on a page. In my opinion, it's arguably one of the most, one of those skills that we, we may take more for granted once we have it than we ever possibly imagined was, uh, was, possible. was there. I, I know for myself in many ways, I'm glad that I learned French first because I think it made learning English easier. Having said that, English is, um, you know, the le's and the la's and the, you know, the, the, the masculine, the feminine aspect masculine, of, feminine, yeah, of, of singular, French language, pure, you know, plural. all that stuff come, comes into play. Um, the, you know, the one fine, you know, thing that I find interesting, especially when you talk about t kindergarten, my kindergarten class was on a base called Lar in Germany. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so when you think about what my kindergarten experience was uh we're, we're talking bomb drills that weren't drills yeah no very i'll, true. I'll leave and, it at and, that and, well and you know what the word kindergarten actually freubel was, was the one who coined the term kindergarten and it came out of germany oh, where, there you go that's where i had my so, kindergarten yeah so you uh you hit the nail right on the head there I, I do find, though, and you said it best, and, and I'm sure you, you see it in those uh, students that have had the dual languages, especially early on. It does become a lot easier to learn more languages. I was talking to a friend of mine in Boston. His daughter has got up to, what, eight languages now. And we're talking some spectacularly foreign languages that you would never think you'd yeah. want to learn. And she's just going through them one after the other after the other because it is there's a compound aspect. And I know... What happens, you know, especially when you bring up stuff like de dementia or any mental uh, degradation over time, if that's the proper term I can use, you know, I I'm a firm believer that, that my brain is the most important organ in my body. Like the rest of my body is a limiting factor to me as far as I'm concerned. You know, put me well, in a jar, I'm happy. And Robert, I don't, I don't mind telling you, some of the things we're learning, especially more recently than it, within the last couple of decades, what we're learning about the brain is, I mean, for years, we thought, okay, your brain is your brain, and there's such a thing called an intelligence quotient, hmm. and people are either born with it or they're or they're they're not. And and what they what you have is what you have, and that's all there is to it. Whereas, yet when it comes to somebody's physical ability, we've learned that they can they can practice a skill and get better at it. When it comes to uh, our health, we you know exposure to secondhand smoke or to smoke can have an impact on the lungs, which are another organ. Um, you know, so, but what we've learned in, in the last two decades is that our brains very much, very much so are experience oriented as well. They're experience dependent. So your, your brain is constantly monitoring its environment. Um, 
And if you look at the subcomponents of the brain, the neocortex, which has become more evolutionary, evolutionarily important to us as we are universal problem solvers in this, in, in this type of world we're living in now. But beneath that neocortex level was the paleomammalian brain, which served us very well at a time when we either needed to fight or take flight. flight. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the reptilian brain even below that, which enabled us to freeze and stay absolutely perfectly still and, and not move uh, as a defense mechanism. So these layers of, of structure and architecture that built up evolutionarily to help us become the kind of species that we are is just, is just now starting to get the attention that it deserves about how important this and I'm going to throw a term out there that you're hearing it and you hear it used, in my humble opinion, incorrectly in some of the commercials that are promoting some projects and uh, products and things like that. But they, they talk about uh, neuroplasticity mm. and, and that plasticity is just the ability for the brain to adapt to its environment. And, and what one of the things that I've been studying lately and have become fascinated with is the work of Dr. Stuart Shanker and Dr. Susan uh, Susan Hopkins who are, I believe, way ahead of their time in terms of talking about self-regulation and helping early children recognize the need to, um, and I don't want to say manage their energy levels and tension levels, but just be aware of what their energy and tension levels are. Um, that, that awareness is, is the first step of the process. And the, and the more competent the for lack of a better term, higher order brain in that dyadic relationship. So myself as a, a kindergarten teacher, if I'm working with a child who is extremely upset and I'm constantly at that child saying, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And pressing that child for, and that child is saying, I don't know. I don't know why I hit my friend. Chances are they're saying they don't know because they don't know. And, and they're shutting down and they're trying to get out of that, that, that situation that they fear is very threatening and very intimidating. So you would get far better results if you just help the child feel safe at first, made them made sure that they were aware that, you know, no harm is going to come to them. And then you bring them around to understanding that, yeah, okay, here's, here's what we think happened. You know, you were excited because of this, 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 and this, and that took over. So it, there's, there's a whole science to it that is really starting to uh, envelop our understanding of early childhood cognitive development. You know, it's funny, when, when you were describing that, I could actually see the three levels or the three tiers of the brain that you were talking about, where that initial reaction of the child was to hide, to, to become still, to, to freeze, yeah. you know. Uh, and then when pressed more at that point in time, <clears throat> and it got to a point where by comforting her, it, her, him, whatever, uh, yeah. you kind of remove that that flea mechanism to to stay you know your comfort yeah. you know so stay then you're able to engage at the higher level because uh, like of all the stuff that that i loved from my university years was maslow i love the triangle i oh, love yeah. how how everything builds upon and you can just pull that bottom foundation you can have all the just crumbling down you got to look at it systematically you cannot have a high EQ conversation with someone that has no concept of EQ. You can't expect someone to be sense, uh, self-aware if they don't even have a basic awareness. So if a child hasn't developed any EQ at that age, 
to have a conversation about uh, value of self and what this means to you and you know that stuff that really engages i would suspect uh the development uh that becomes difficult i would suspect so you're kind of balancing those two i would suspect you know what and it and it is remarkable because that 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 those brain structures and the brain architecture that enable that you to make that connection with that with the, with an individual child so you're tapping into something that really allows you to share your your calm with that child and there's that that the part of the brain that i talked about that is responsible for the fight or flight is the limbic region and there's a phenomenon called uh, limbic resonance and i know because of your work with audio <laughs> audiographic uh, or audio audiophonic material yeah. uh, you you understand how tuning forks oh yeah operate well well this resonance is a phenomenon that takes place between my brain and a child's brain. So for example, if, if, and we've always heard the expression, children are sponges, they absorb everything around them. So if I'm feeling stressed and anxious and I'm at my wits end with what to do, and I'm at a very low energy level, but a very high tension level, the child's limbic region in their brain is going to pick up on those vibrations and sense that this is not a safe place for me. Yeah. Well, it's it's, so, it's almost they've got all the sensors, but they don't have the diagnostics to figure out what all the meanings of, of the signals. You know so. what? You, I couldn't have said it better myself. You hit the nail right on the head there, Robert, because that that's exactly it. They've they've got the sensors, and their antennas go up mm -hmm. when they sense that sort of stuff. They're aware of what's going on around. They're I, I mean, highly they, tuned they, at that point. They're highly attuned. Yeah. They might not know how to cope with it, yeah. and that's where it becomes the adult, either the the kindergarten teacher or the e early childhood educator, to help ensure that they feel first of all safe because yeah. nothing's going to happen without safety. So um, you, you make them feel safe and then you build on that relationship and let them know that they're okay. They're cared for and that, okay, now let's look at what happened. And then you begin and, and through modeling this process over and over and over again, in what we call co-regulation, we eventually hope that new patterns uh, un unfold where they can start to self-regulate and they start to self-analyze and self-reflect on these situations that have resulted in, in some of the situations where they've gone home crying or, or gone home and said they didn't have a good day at school because this happened and this happened and then that meant this happened and then they ended up being sent to the principal's office. Well, guess what? I, I'm not a firm believer in sending kids to the principal's office. I would much rather keep them in my classroom, keep them safe. And instead of... Um, isolation-based discipline, rather than separate a child from the group because they've done something wrong, I choose to bring that child a little closer to me and model how to do it correctly. Yeah. If they're still, so if they're willing to learn, and I think that, you know, it's, um, I said this earlier regarding something else, there's two styles, I think, out there. It's those that have the willingness, and I'm being very generic here, to address and fix a problem, and those that don't have the willingness to address and fix a problem. And I, I purposely address and fix because I really believe there's two stages there. You need to become aware of what is it that you're trying to fix. And problem is not necessarily the right word, but, yeah. but, but it's that second stage that, that you see engagement at all tiers. We're talking, you know, throughout. It's so hard to get people engaged. Well, restor restoration is certainly a very important part of it, but I, I, I have to disagree with you yeah, a little bit about, about the willingness because I, based on, on my experience as a kindergarten teacher over the last 10 years, there, is, there isn't a child who isn't willing to want to be friendly toward, like, they, they, again, something may, they may have not slept the night before. They mm. may be extremely tired. 
they may be, you know, something may be happening. Maybe mommy and daddy were having a huge fight at the breakfast table that this child was exposed to. So the energy and tension level in that household before the child even got to school may have been through the roof. Mm. Then all, then all of a sudden you complicate things by, okay, the child has to come into your classroom where, and again, this is, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not beating up anybody in particular, but a child enters a classroom where there may be as many as 28, 29 other little bodies crowding around where he's supposed to hang up his backpack and his coat and somebody may jostle him a little or make him cause him to drop his backpack or drop his lunch bag where things spill out. So you can see how that energy and tension level keeps escalating and piling on top. And then all of a sudden he wants to go sit down on the carpet with his friends and somebody is sitting in the place where he wants to sit or sit next to the friend that he wants to sit next to. Um, and again, that adds more tension and more stress. So is, is there a child out there who really is choosing to act out in a certain way? Uh, maybe on the odd occasion, there is a child who will choose to make the, make, make a, you know, do something that perhaps they know they shouldn't do. But more often than not, a lot of what we see, if we reframe it and look at it through the lens of stress and energy responses, that child is telling you exactly what's wrong. Mm. Um, now, they may not use the words and, and you have to become a bit of a detective to uncover what is really um, setting them off. But once you do that, and, and again, I'm, I'm just talking from my own perspective here, rather than get down on my, you know, on my haunches and, and be directly across from that child and, and, and stare eyeball to eyeball, I would much rather position myself right next to them, typically on their right side. And I, I would sit next to them and just talk in a very calming, soothing voice and let them know, you know what, I understand you're very sad. Yeah. You know, and Mr. Persia, Mr. Persia gets sad too. And, and so you lower your tone of voice, you lower that register, you, 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 you slow. Well, this your is the back down. to the resonance that you're, you're using the resonance exactly. to, to and, model and, and that you behavior. Create, yeah, yeah. You create a sense of calm and then you introduce the concept of restoration. Now let's go make this right mm. with our friends. So once again, you stabilize it, you figure yeah. it out. You know, and I think maybe that that was kind of what I was getting at. There's the assessment of you need to figure out what the real problem is, because typically in a lot of these scenarios, the what you see is not uh, it's a, a symptom of, of the larger issue. And I used to say this a lot about people commuting is you're asking someone to do an hour and a half in the worst driving condition and expect them to come in all bubbly in the office. You know what I mean? Uh, I, it's one of the reasons I've been preaching work from home for a very long time. I'd rather a person get up, have a coffee, go for a walk, come in and give me two, three hours of something solid as yeah. opposed to coming in, as you say, that child, yeah. you know, because trust me, we, we've been there. We, we've, we've all been we, there. And as adults as well. And, and I, I, yet what you just described, you would never get in the workplace. So what no. you get instead are, are some much bigger flare-ups to say the least but honestly to the what i picked up there's any stress that you bring into the scenario you know what happens before the story is the story in many cases well it, it, and it goes back you mentioned maslow and your studies uh, you know of maslow's hierarchy of needs i go back to one of the one of the first models i learned in in university and studying the art of communication was that you have a sender and a receiver and a message but then you have these sub-processes in between called encoding and decoding. And, and my background and my upbringing and everything that I bring to this environment 
is going to determine how I encode the message that I want to relay. And yet the receivers at the receiver's end, their upbringing and the entire constellation of their life experiences are going to determine how they decode yeah. that message, which may be entirely different than what I had entire than what I intended with my encoding. Yeah. What, so what, what it all the... takes place it all takes place within an environment where there is other noise. Um, and I don't mean physical noise in terms of the ears, but other other variables, hunger, um, you know, other distractions, world events, things that are taking place that that can either detract or enhance or or magnify or or monetize um, an event. To, so that those are all all very important factors that we need to consider. When when I used to do a lot of collaboration, one of the first things that we always did was define words, whether or not they were acronyms or words, because you need to make sure you're speaking the same language, you know, and once right. you've got the basic building blocks of language, you can start communicating and too many people just jump into the communication. And as you say, it's, it's Greek to me, you know, quite literally, uh, or more importantly, you say something that's meant to mean X, but it means Y. And trust me, I've seen so many projects fail just purely on the misunderstanding of, of a concept. So the importance. Well, and of I, that. I just before yeah. before you wrap up, Robert, I, I will touch one more thing. Yeah, and go I will for say it. That I was just going to say that the last thing I want to drive home is that 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 universal language, that one that one that one piece of language that everybody understands, especially in the early years, is safety. When I mm -hmm. speak in safe in safe terms to a child, that's when I'm going to uncover what what really lies beneath. So it's it's becoming fluent in in speaking safety no and it only makes sense because you're you're not forcing defense mechanisms to go up right you know any anything that that brings up whatever those defense mechanisms or or past behaviors or you know misunderstandings of what you're you're implying you know because what you're saying is not necessarily what i'm hearing as as you point out uh those are all factors that will escalate a problem considerably faster and and you know this like everything else part of the process is, is to de-escalate and to buy time regardless right. of whether or not you're talking police maneuvers or you're talking dealing with any conflict it's how can i de-escalate this there's a certain degree of eq process that goes in there as you pointed out and all the time there you're, you're trying to buy time you know right. so that it let's figure this out and as you say, yeah. you step through the process. So that, and then, and then you get back to restoration. Exactly. So um, I think that's probably a good point right there. But I want to talk just briefly more about restoration because I know it's a good word. God Almighty, it's a great word. Yeah. What are some of those moments that you've experienced where you've had that restoration process and you've seen a transformation? Because you would have seen children evolve past that point 20 years in some cases five years in some other cases you know you've seen an impact of that you've been able to to gauge the stuff that you you've admitted that you really want to focus on and you could see that lack of better statement experiment you know progress over time yeah. because we're, we're all well, iterations in some ways without mentioning any any names certainly yeah, obviously I, 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 not, would, yes. I would never do that but uh but a case in a kindergarten class where i i had a young child a few years ago who again had one of those mornings that typically evolved much like what you know the cereal might have been spilled the bus ride might have been a little uncomfortable he may have been a little tired whatever happened but he arrived at school and and sure enough the first recess during the first recess break uh, he got into a, a huge Alter, with one altercation of his, 
one of one one of his closest friends and I and and you know typically um, had this been much earlier in my teaching career I might have separated the two boys brought them into the class and said okay now you can't play with the rest of the group for the for this next little while because that's that's, that's going to cool, be your yeah, cool that's going to be your punishment yes so the, the fact that they didn't know how to interact meant that they were now going to not have the opportunity to interact which now that I think of it to even even in reflection, I think, what was I thinking at the time? Like, how is that possibly going to help these children learn how to interact more positively by preventing them from interacting? So, But you needed to go long- through that iteration to be able to have the conversation that forced you to have the next iteration. So well, and, it was and, and that's what happened was, uh, you know, when I looked at this situation, I thought, okay, boys, you're going to come work. You're going to come work with Mr. Persia. Both of you are going to come. And I had one on one side and one on the other. And we modeled how to go through things. And then sure enough, after working together with a little while and talking about, you know, what kind of day this boy was having and what kind of day this boy was having and what they were thinking and what they were feeling. And, you know, in Mr. Persia's class, we talk about our feelings and um, sure enough, off they went on their own a, a little while later and they made each other a card without me ever having to tell them to make each other a card. So they, they went off and drew something and drew a picture and, and sure enough, they went over to each other and said, here, I made, I made this for you. Nice. Nice. nice so, touch. Those are, those are the moments that occur um, far more often when we allow them to, than than we ever would have had we used the previous disciplinary model of, Oh yeah, I'm going to show you because you couldn't interact well with your friends. Now you're not going to get the chance to interact with your friends. Yeah. No. And like I said, I, I grew up where, you know, the principal would walk into the room, pull the kid to the front of the class and you get the whack yeah. in front of everybody. Right. So obviously things have changed a bit over the years. Well, and, and that what, what that does is instill in the rest of the children is that that, first of all, that's somebody to be avoided. Oh yeah. And, 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 and certainly that, compliance was the order of the day, not necessarily self-regulation, but... Oh, it was more of a headmaster model as opposed yeah. to a principal model, right? But, so. uh, you know, I, I, we can't be hard on each other because, you know, there's what we knew at the time and what we know now. And, you know... Maya, that, Maya Angelou, yeah, yeah, one, exactly. one of the quotes I live by, one of the quotations I live by, when we know better, we do better. And I continue to try to do better, my friend. Yeah, well, I, I use the term iterate towards success is you know, is every iteration a step in the right direction and, and you got as many iterations as you want and whether or not they're, they're, they're <laughs> I got 60 years worth of them, Robert. Well, see, that's the thing. There's, there's, and this is maybe the point I was trying to get at. There are those, I believe that come to a point where they decide whether or not that's enough to learn. Um, and then there are those that continue and the compound nature of education is understated beyond belief like i'm not an intelligent guy at all like i'm a really well, stupid I would, man i would disagree no with no, you. no I, i'm but, telling you right now i can't tie my shoes but what i was getting at is it's forced me in many cases to have to figure shit out myself or learn this or whatnot and you know the conversation i had earlier with someone else about the last 10 years the stuff that we have to do ourselves now versus what we didn't know how to do 10 years ago and having taught ourselves that has made us what we are you know what I mean? And and trust me, I love failures. I, I'm a huge believer that failures define individuals. And, and the more failures, the better, as long as you learn from them and you don't repeat them, right? But well, you want to, yeah. There's there's a podcast I'm going to steer you towards. If you ever get a chance to listen to Stephanie, Stephanie Faye Frank talks about neuroscience and the art of failure and how it leads to greater success. But the one last thought I want to leave you with uh, you talked about iteration towards success, Robert. 
Uh, I mentioned I have 60 years experience with, there's something to the, something to be said for having 60 years experience versus having one year experience 60 times. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. so. It, 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 like I said, the compound aspect is, is something that you, you can't understate, but it's, it's that desire to continue. And there's sadly a lot that decide to go into old age and give up on that. Yeah. And I think that's when a lot of the, the brain stuff comes in. You know, it's a muscle like everything else. You need to constantly be using it or, you know, you know. And, and use it or lose it. Well, it, it's like I said, uh, the rest of my body is, is completely along for the ride as far as I'm concerned. There's only one part of me that, that truly matters. And it's the part that hasn't stopped improving, <laughs> you know, improving over year, over year, over year. And you want to continue that, obviously. On that note, thank you for a wonderful chat. Once again, I've got all this wonderful gear. And at the end of the day, really all I want to do is have a good conversation. And you've definitely delivered on that, Mr. Joe Persia. Well, thank you very much, Robert. I look forward to our next chat on whatever subject you want to, you want to talk about. There's, there's a lot looming very large on the horizon. We don't know what education is going to look like come this fall. We can certainly uh, get back together and talk about that. Uh, any, any number of topics that are of interest to us both, my friend. Always a pleasure. I believe you will be on sooner than later. Take care, sir. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. 